Well, before we dive into the message, I have just one thing that I want to tell you about. Uh, several of you know that when I was on sabbatical last summer, God really started burdening my heart with the need to help our church become a praying church. And so we've taken steps over the last several months to make that happen. Uh, once a month, I get away for a personal prayer retreat, day long, just get away, no distractions. And several of our staff, they do the same. Uh, every Thursday morning at 8.30, our staff gets here and, uh, and we meet together for 30 minutes and we just call on God on behalf of our church and, and on behalf of individuals in our church. Uh, once a month, our staff gathers for an extended time of prayer and worship. We used to have two staff meetings a month, and I said, I think we only need one. We're going to kill the other one and turn it into a worship prayer time for us. And so we come in, and we read the word, and, and we uh, sing together, and we just press into God for needs that exist in our church, in our community, and in our world. And then finally on Sundays, I hope you've noticed, we've made some changes, uh, like what we did just a few moments ago, stopping and, and carving out time just to pray for people. Uh, at the end of my messages now, or, or the messages of whoever's preaching up here in my place, we've taken time to, to make sure our prayer team, our pastors, our elders are available so that people can receive individual prayer. And I'm really excited to tell you about what's next. Uh, coming up in just a couple weeks, on Thursday, March the 3rd, we are rolling out a monthly night of prayer and worship. It's going to be a lot different from what we do on Sundays uh, we're not going to have big production, big band, all that stuff. It's just going to be real stripped down. We're going to come in, sing together, take communion, and get our hearts ready for prayer. And then corporately, we're going to take time to call on God on behalf of our church, each other, our community, and our world. And we're also going to have time uh, where our prayer team, our pastors, and our elders are available so that people can come and receive individual prayer. All right? So a few things in light of that. One, I want to challenge you to be here for these nights of prayer as often as you can, right? And I know the mindset, well, James, I'm busy. I mean, when am I going to fit something like this in? Can we just all agree we're too busy not to pray? Are you with me? So I want to encourage you, be here as much as you can for these monthly nights of prayer and worship. They'll always be on the first Thursday of every month, so you can mark it on your calendar now. Um, secondly, secondly, I would say if you're someone who needs prayer, uh, if you're struggling in some area of life, emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally, I want to invite you to come to receive prayer. Uh, I'm not promising that if you come to receive prayer, all your problems are going to disappear and go away. All I'm promising, look, all I'm promising is that you'll be loved and prayed for. And we believe there's great power in that. And then finally, I would say to you, if you know someone who needs prayer, somebody who doesn't go to our church, uh, maybe they go to another church or they don't go to church at all, but you know God needs to do something in their life and they're desperate, I want you to bring them with you so that they can receive the prayer that they need, all right? I'm going to keep saying it. I truly believe with all my heart if our church gets this thing uh, right, this prayer thing right, we're going to see God do more in our church and in our lives than we can ask or imagine. So I hope you'll be a part, all right? Look, we're in week seven of a series on the book of James. So if you have your Bibles in your laps, grab them. If you have a device with a Bible app, uh, turn your Bibles on. Go to James chapter 4 with me. James chapter 4. As you're finding your way there, I'm going to say a series of words. And in just a moment, I want you to tell me what all these words have in common, okay? Are you ready? Here we go. Uh, hot, cold, short, tall, big, small, north, south, east, west, left, right, up, down. How about this? Uh, Atlanta sports championships. What do all these words... What do all these words have in common? Come on. They're opposites, right? Now, how do you know that? Well, you know that because you understand that opposites are contrary things. 
by definition, they oppose each other, right? They can't both be true at the same time. And in our passage for today, this is what we find James teaching in regards to godliness and worldliness. He teaches that these things are opposite. And according to him, every single person in the room falls into one of these two opposing categories. The question we need to answer today is this, which category are we in? So with that question in mind, let's dive in. James 4, starting in verse 1. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, let's stop and talk. I told you earlier in this series that James wrote this book that bears his name as a letter to persecuted Christians that had been dispersed outside of Palestine. These were people being hunted down, mistreated, even killed for their faith in Jesus. And the stress of being on the run had finally caught up with them. I mean, life was hard for this church. They were struggling. They were suffering. Many of them were living in poverty. Uh, Cliques started popping up in the church, and they were fighting with each other. I know it's hard to believe that church people would fight with each other, but it was happening in James's church. Look, because of their circumstances, these people, they were wavering back and forth between godliness and worldliness. I think I want to be godly. No, 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 wait, wait, I want to be worldly. No, wait, godliness, it's really going to characterize and define my life. Hold on, no, 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 you know what? I think worldliness is so much easier. And in James 4, he writes to address this constant wavering, and in doing so, he gives us a clear picture of worldliness. He starts with a question. Why are you guys fighting? Why do you keep fighting with each other? And then he answers his question with another question. He says, isn't it because your passions are at war within you? That word passions that you see in verse 1, it's the Greek word hedone, and and it's where we get our English word hedonism from. It means self-centered desires. And so in essence, James is saying to his church, the reason you keep fighting with each other is this. You're your greatest desire in life. It's all about your pleasure, your comfort, your glory, your honor. God's not first. Other people aren't first. You're first. You've made life all about you. And then he points to their lives to make his point. First, he says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. If you've ever wanted something so badly in life that you were willing to take anyone out who stood in your way to get it, this should make sense to you. But I want that promotion so badly that I'll step on whoever I need to step on to get it. I want that relationship so badly that I'll ruin that other person's character so that they have no shot at being with the person I want to be with. I want money or stuff or that substance so badly that I will lie, cheat, and steal to get it. This is what was going on in James's church. Their unhealthy desires had led them to unrestrained hostility. We don't know if they were truly murdering each other, but apparently James thought that their hostility was so severe that it all just kind of fell into one big category. And I have to think he saw it this way because of what his older brother Jesus taught back in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches this, that if you and I have anger stored up in our hearts toward another person, we are just as guilty as that man or woman who would physically take someone's life from them. Look, I know those are hard words, but they remind us of the dangers of unhealthy desires. Secondly, James says to his people, 
you covet and you can't obtain and so you quarrel or you, or you fight to covet simply means that you want what your neighbor has i, I want their stuff i want uh their house their car their money their kids i want uh, her husband or or his wife right the list goes on and on now why do we do that why do we covet don't we covet because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people we look at their stuff and then we look at our stuff and we like their stuff better than our stuff and then we start to feel entitled to their stuff right well i work hard just like them i'm a good person you know what in fact i'm better than them why don't i have their stuff i deserve their stuff this was the mindset of james's church and it caused them to fight with their christian brothers and sisters over stuff and for stuff and so james continues and he says look there are two reasons you don't have all these things you think you need reason number one you don't ask instead of taking your needs to god you're busy trying to meet all your own needs reason number two when you do ask god to meet all your needs you ask for the wrong reasons you're going and asking god to give you what you think you need so that you can continue to use what he gives you to feed your own selfish desires. Look, James is trying to teach us something here of critical importance. It's this, if you're taking notes, there are things God wants to give us, but his giving is dependent upon our asking. Let that just sit on your heart and mind for a moment. That right now, right now, God wants to give you certain things, but his giving them to you is dependent upon your asking. Please hear what I'm not saying, all right? I don't want to confuse you. I'm not saying that if you'll just go to God and ask for what you want, he's going to give it all to you. I'm not saying that if you'll go to God and, and ask for the bigger house, the nicer car, the better paying job, that God will be like your personal genie and grant all your wishes. All I'm saying is this, that there are things God wants to give you, things that are good for you and glorifying to him. But look, don't miss it. He's not going to give you those things until you ask and unless you ask for the right reasons. Now, why does God do it this way? Well, a couple reasons. First, he does it this way to grow our faith and trust in him. Listen, I think you'd agree with me. Anytime you ask God for anything, it's an act of faith, right? It's you acknowledging, God, you're sovereign, you're powerful, you're in control, uh, you are the provider of all things. And so when you go to God and you acknowledge those things by asking him for what you need, and he then meets your needs, doesn't that increase your faith and trust in him? You go, wow, you know what? God's with me. God's for me. He's not just listening. He's responding. He's acting on my behalf. But God does this for a second reason, and it's huge. He does it this way to change our desires. You see, if you're going to God and asking for things you think you need, and you're doing so selfishly, God's desire is to change you. And oftentimes, he'll work to change you before giving you what you need. And I'll try to make it real practical, all right? Uh, Psalm 37, 4 tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord, and God will give us the desires of our hearts. Beautiful verse, beautiful promise. Now, please pay attention to its order, all right? The psalmist does not say, hey, what do you want? What do you think you need? Like, make a list, write it down, put it on the fridge, and then get to delighting in God. And God, he's going to take care of that list. He's going to give you everything you think you need. That's the selfish approach. Even if everything on your list uh, are, are good things, it's still all about you, isn't it? You want God to give you what you think you need on your own terms so that you can satisfy all your own selfish desires. 
That's why the psalmist says, start here, start by delighting yourself in God. You see, when we delight ourselves in God, God changes us. He changes our desires into his desires. And when our desires become his desires, look, God will give us everything and anything our heart desires. And why? Well, because in meeting our desires, he's meeting his desires. Are you with me? Does this make sense? Awesome. Look, I I have a a great uh, set of friends, my wife and I, great friends. We've known them since high school that have been a clear picture of this Psalm 37, 4 truth to me personally. For over 10 years, the greatest desire of their lives was to become parents. That's all they wanted. And they tried everything they could possibly do, and nothing worked. So our group of friends, we started praying for them relentlessly. Uh, There are some pastors, not just me, but some other pastors in our group of friends. And so we did what James 5 teaches. We'll get there in a few weeks. But we actually sat them down, anointed them with oil, laid hands on them, and prayed that God would heal her so that they could become parents. And what was amazing is this. Short time later, they made the announcement, we're pregnant. We're pregnant. We were excited, I mean, ecstatic, celebrating what we believe was an answer to prayer. But then just a few days later, she went to the doctor, and they found out they had lost the baby. I'll be honest, I didn't know what to say in that moment. My wife has had a miscarriage. Uh, I know how brutal it is to walk through a season like that. And I don't think there really is anything to say in moments like those. But here's what our friends decided. They decided, and it wasn't easy. They would tell you this. They decided, in spite of all of our frustrations and all our unanswered questions, we will continue to delight in the Lord. So they got to delighting. And as they were delighting, a short time later, God opened the door. There was a young woman who got pregnant unexpectedly. Uh, I won't go into all the details of her situation, but it was rough. And she knew that she couldn't care for this little boy And so she heard about our friends, and she came to them, and she said, hey, will you be his parents? They were there the day that he was born in the hospital. They brought him home to their house. And none of us can imagine their family without him today. Look, God met their desire. He just did it in a different way than we were asking. And I tell you, look, when you delight yourself in the Lord, he will meet all the desires of your heart. Why? Because your desires are his desires. So let me ask you this before we move on. What do you want from God? And maybe the better question to ask is this. What do you think you need from God? Have you asked God? And have you asked God for the right reasons? Or or are you that person whose selfish desires continue to push you toward hostility, comparing, coveting, and fighting? James says if your answer is the latter, unfortunately, you fall into the category of worldliness. Look at verse 4, and I'll show you. Here's what he says, hard verse. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So in verse 4, here's what he says. He says, look, if you're that selfish, self-centered person I just described in verses 1 through 3, you're committing spiritual adultery. He's painting a picture for us here. He's saying to us, you're in bed with the world. You're cheating on God. You've made yourself his enemy. You see, it's so important for us to understand today that there's no middle ground here. Like, nobody's out in no man's land. Uh, No one's stuck in neutral 
None of us can say, you know what, James, I, I don't really think I'm worldly or godly. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. No, you're not. You're worldly or you're godly. So which one is it for you? Listen, if you'd be honest enough to confess today, uh, James, bro, I think I'm in the worldly category. I have some incredible news for you. Keep reading. Verse 5. James continues, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says that God yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? And therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the first piece of good news for all the worldly people in the room is this. God is jealous for you. I know when some of us see this and hear it, it sounds weird, right? Strange, awkward, almost uncomfortable. And it's because oftentimes in our mind, jealousy is a purely negative thing. It's when we're envious of another person's uh, accomplishments or achievements. It's when we act like what belongs to somebody else should belong to us. And jealousy tends to lead to anger, bitterness, heartbreak, broken relationships. Look, that's not the case with divine jealousy. God's jealousy is a good and beautiful thing that ultimately leads us to life and freedom. And, And James explains himself. He says that when God created us, and please hear me, God created all of us, everyone in this room, everyone outside of this room, he created us on purpose for a purpose. And when God created us, he put a spirit inside of us. It's the highest part of who we are as human beings, and the spirit that God put inside of us is a spirit that longs to know and worship him. This is why some of us in the room keep walking in circles in life. It's why we keep asking questions like, isn't there more to life than all this? Why can't I find joy? Why does my marriage keep going this way? Why do I have everything the world has to offer me and I still have no peace, no rest, no satisfaction? Can I tell you why? You were never meant to find those things in the world. The world tells you, come and and, and take all that we have to offer you and, and you'll know joy and satisfaction. The problem is the world's lying to you. God put a spirit in you that cannot find rest, joy, and satisfaction until it looks to him. Look at me, you're his. You're his. And when you and I fell into sin, God went to great lengths to get us back. He put his son Jesus on a cross to win us back from the world. The book of Isaiah tells us that that God crushed his own son under the weight of our sin so that we could be freed from sin, loved and accepted by him, free from the power and control of this broken world in which we live. Look, when you know whose you are and you know what God has done on your behalf, doesn't it make sense that God would be jealous for you? That he'd be jealous for you anytime you climb back into bed with the world from which he saved you. I'm telling you, man, regardless of how worldly you may be, he's jealous for you. The second piece of good news for all the worldly people in the room is this. It's beautiful. God's grace, it's greater than your worldliness. It is. I'm telling you, you can't believe the lie today that says this. Well, I'm worldly, so God hates me. I've messed up, and and so God, he's angry. He's written me off. God wants nothing to do with me unless I turn myself around, clean my life up, and work harder to be a better person. That's a lie that the world feeds you. It's a lie that the enemy feeds you. The truth is this. Regardless of how sinful or worldly you may be, God's grace is greater. Isn't that amazing? This is what James tells us in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Am I the only one who thinks this is incredible? 
Look, it doesn't matter how great you think your sin is. It doesn't matter what you think God can't forgive you for. God says otherwise. No, bring it to me. I've got more than enough grace to cover it, and I promise I'll set you free. But if you need the grace of God, there's a catch. Here's the catch. In order to receive his grace, humility is required. I mean, James plainly tells us God, he opposes proud people. Proud people who walk around thinking they don't need him. Proud people who think that their sin's no big deal. They can just do what they want. Proud people who refuse to call on him for help. James says God opposes those people. But the humble, those who come to God humbly confessing their need for him, God opens his arms wide regardless of how worldly that person may be. Jesus himself tells us a beautiful story in Luke 15 that really gives us a picture of this truth. It's a story of a prodigal son. Comes to his dad one day, and he demands his share of his inheritance. Basically, he's saying to his dad's face, you're as good as dead to me, and so just give me what you owe me so I can get out of your house and live like I want. And what's crazy is that the father actually agrees. And so this son takes his stuff, and he sets off to this far-off country, And when he gets there, he wastes everything his father had given him on what Jesus calls reckless living. I mean, it'd be like one of us taking all of our money out to Vegas and wasting it on gambling, booze, drugs, prostitutes, strip clubs. This kid was living in total debauchery, and he was having a blast doing it until all his stuff ran out. See, that's the thing with sin. I'll be honest, sin's fun for a season, right? If you say it's not, you're either lying or you're doing it wrong. It's fun. The problem with sin is this. The fun always runs out. Sin never delivers on the promises that it makes to you. And this kid found that out the hard way. One day he wakes up and he's starving to death. He's hanging out with pigs. Not the job you want if you're a Jewish kid. And he decides as he's sitting in the pig pen, I think it's time to go back home. And so he picks himself up and he heads back toward his home. And his plan is to just beg his dad to let him be a servant in his household. Now, anytime I read this story, I love to picture this broken-hearted father walking out to the edge of the road every single day, just hoping, 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 I hope today is the day my son comes back home. And I like to picture on this particular day that father walking out to the edge of the road. He's taking his daily walk, and he's just hoping. And as he looks off into the distance, he sees a figure of a broken-down dirty, shame-filled, smelling-like-pig kid. And as he's taking it in, he's trying to figure out, is that my boy, is that not my boy? And in the moment, he realizes, that's my son. He takes off running. But he doesn't run to his son so that he can point his finger in his face and tell him what a disappointment he is. He runs to his son so that he can wrap him up and hold him tighter than he's ever held him before. And here's the son trying to get his apology out. Yeah, I'm sorry, I've, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, I know I shouldn't even be here, I don't deserve to be your son, dad, can I, can I just be a servant in your house? And his dad, he's not even listening, he's yelling back at the house, telling his servants, my son who was dead, he's alive, my son who was lost, he's, he's found, get a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, go into the field and find the fattest calf you can find, we're partying tonight, my son has come back home. Would you look at me? Look at me. Regardless of how worldly you may be, that's the reception that waits on you when you come humbly back to God. 
Because of what Jesus has done for you. God promises, if you come back to me, I'll honor you. Come back to me, I'll give you the authority and power you need to leave your past behind. I'll invite you in, not as a servant, but as a loved son or daughter. And all of heaven will celebrate over your homecoming. This is what's true. God's grace is greater than your sin and your worldliness. And if you need to come back to God, look, his arms are open wide for you. So how in the world do you do it? How do you come back to God? How do you leave worldliness behind and embrace godliness in its place? Well, James tells us. Go back to the passage, verse 7. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In these verses, James shows us that the way back to God is the way of repentance. To repent, all it means is this. To repent means to change your mind. That's all it means. It doesn't mean uh, to fix your life, to clean yourself up, to turn it all around, to repair all the broken places that exist inside of you. I know some of you in the room, you think, if I come back to God, that's my job. i got to get my life straight before I do it. That's not your job, and you'll never do it because you were never meant to do it. It's God's job. He invites you to come just as you are. To repent means to change your mind. And when you change your mind, look, that change of mind ultimately leads to a change of direction. It leads you out of worldliness and into godliness. And James does us a great favor here, and he tells us exactly what to change our minds on. Check it out. He says, if you need to come back to God, first, you need to change your mind on submission. He says to all the worldly people in the room, submit to God, resist the devil. In other words, he's saying, trust God, obey with God, walk with God, uh, choose each day to live under God's control. Stop trusting, walking with, obeying, and living under the control of the enemy. It's so critical for us to understand today that if you are not submitted to God, you are resisting him. And if you're not resisting the devil, you're submitted to him. Again, there's no middle ground here. Like nobody can say today, you know, I don't think I'm really submitted to either one. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. No, you're not. You're submitted to God or you're submitted to the devil. And the only way to resist the devil is by remaining submitted to God. So the question is, who are you submitted to? Are you submitted to God or are you submitted to the devil? Who is your life honoring? Is it honoring God or is it honoring the worldly ways of the devil? James says, if your answer is the latter, that has to change. And when it changes, like when you change your mind on who to submit to each day, here's the beautiful promise. God draws near and the devil flees from you. Isn't that awesome? It's a beautiful promise. The second thing James tells us to change our mind on is this. You need to come back to God. You need to change your mind on sin. He calls worldly people double-minded. And he says, if you're in this category, what you need to do is cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Here's the call. He's telling us, stop treating sin casually and start taking it seriously. Change your mind on the seriousness of sin. And why wouldn't we do this? I mean, think about it. If it's true that our sin dishonors God who loves us and wants what's best, and that our enemy's desire is to use sin to devastate and destroy our lives, why wouldn't we desire to take sin seriously and to be pure and clean of it? 
I mean, we should all desire that if we really want to be free, right? And, and James, he tells us what it looks like to think about sin differently. He says, look, stop laughing at sin and start mourning over it. Stop pretending like there's great joy and satisfaction to be found in sin and start weeping because of its presence in your life. He, he wants us to know that our heart should be broken over the fact that our sin breaks the heart of our good, gracious, loving Father. So does it in your life. Like, does your sin break your heart because you know that it breaks the heart of God? James says, if it doesn't, that has to change. And when it changes and you start taking sin seriously, here it is. This is awesome. Verse 10. That's when God exalts you. He points us to the same promise he pointed to earlier in the passage. Just as that father exalted his prodigal son after his return home, James promises, look, if you'll stop trying to lift yourself up through sinful means for sinful purposes and you'll come humbly to God, God will lift you up. It's only when we stop trying to exalt ourselves that God exalts us. Now, there's one final piece to repentance, and uh, I want to show it to you. Verses 11 and 12, and then we're done. Here's what he says. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Uh, Let me make it easy, all right? In these verses, James speaks of the law. And we learned earlier in this series that the law of God tells us simply to love our neighbor as ourself. And James is saying here, when you fail to do that, you're actually judging the law. You're you're elevating yourself over the commands of God, and you're acting as if you have the right to pass judgment on other people, when in fact that right belongs to him and him alone. You're, You're not God, so don't act like it. That's what James is saying here. Here's his point. True repentance should always include other people. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. If you need to come back to God, you need to change your mind on somebody. Or or for some of us in the room, uh, this word is plural, and it's somebodies. Here's the idea. Look, as I explained earlier, a worldly life is a self-centered life. And if you live a self-centered life, uh, you will inevitably damage other people along the way. And when you decide to come back to God, what you can't do is leave all your casualties laying on the side of the road as you work your way back to him. Are you with me? What you can't do is pass all those wounded people as you're making your way back to God and go, ah, you know what, I'll just ignore it. I'll act like they don't exist. No, as you make your way back to God, what you need to do is you need to stop and address the wounds that, that you've created as a result of your worldliness. And so my question for you is this, who have you damaged along the way? Who have you spoken evil against, as James puts it? Who have you criticized, condemned, wounded as a result of of living for you? To repent means change your mind on that person. Regardless of who they are, what they've done, as you come back to God, you also go to them. And you address whatever you need to address relationally so that, so that, look, so that you can stop playing God and just love your neighbor as yourself. As we get ready to close, uh, I just want to be your pastor for a moment if I can. I told our staff this past week that this message might be the hardest message out of the entire series. It's just a hard passage, right? And all of us would say yes to that. It's a hard passage. But I don't think it's a hard passage because James was trying to be hard on his people. You see, as I read this and and studied this past week, I was fully aware James was a pastor. 
He loved and cared for these people that he wrote to. And I can almost hear a pleading in James 4, 1 through 12. I can hear him saying to his people, look, you're playing with fire. You're in bed with the world. You've abandoned the one who gave his life for you. And I promise it might be satisfying now, but at some point it's going to go bad for you. Leave worldliness behind. Get out of of the world's bed and, and come back to God. He loves you. He has grace for you. Look, as your pastor who loves you, I just want to plead with you if I can. If you're playing with sin, if you're in bed with the world, if you're submitted to your enemy in place of God, you're playing with fire. And it might be satisfying for a season, but I promise the sin in your life will devastate and destroy you at some point. And so I'm begging you, pleading with you today. God loves you. He cares for you. His grace is greater than your sin. Would you leave worldliness behind? His arms are open wide for you. Come back to God today. If you need to do that, I want to give you the chance to do it right now. So can we just bow our heads all over the room? Just enter into a time of prayer. Our band, as as we're just getting settled in, our band, they're going to come and they're going to lead us in a song. Our prayer team is going to come. And they're going to be here with me at the front of the room. If you need to come back to God today, as we stand to sing, would you just come let us pray for you? Would you come let us pray with you? I had a guy last gathering who came to pray with me, and he said, I just wish you'd shut up and quit talking because I just needed to be up here praying. And so if you know that that's you, man, you're just squirming and God's working, come let us pray. If you just want to come and kneel at the front of this room and and allow us to place a hand on you, we'd love to pray over you. And for those of us in the room who've never put our faith in Jesus for the first time, we've never come to God ever confessing our need for him, look, I want to invite you to come as well. If you need to do that, Just come and and tell one of the people at the front of the room, I need to trust him for the first time, and we want to help you do that. God, my prayer is that you would move in power in the next few moments. Don't let us believe the lies that tell us we need to clean ourselves up, we need to fix our lives, we need to do better, try harder before coming to you. God, give us the humility and the brokenness we need to come to you today just as we are. God, do in our lives what only you can do. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. If you need to come, you come. We're waiting on you. Prayer team, come and join me.